And a good afternoon to you. I'm Al Cresta. Thanks for joining me. I, we've I've done a number of commentaries, and we've talked about this during our Direct to My Desk segments, about there seems to be perpetual outrage uh, in our culture, political outrage. Uh, certainly among Catholics right now, there's extraordinary outrage because of abuse and mishandling of, of uh, sexual misconduct within the church. And, of course, moral outrage, moral indignation has a place, but we all know, uh, we probably all have friends and probably have engaged in this ourselves, where uh, there's almost something that feels good about expressing outrage. We might be angry about something, but kind of, quote, getting it out, venting, uh, gives us a, I don't know, just releases certain kinds of... uh, hormones inside of ourselves, and we feel, sometimes we feel a little superior from it. Uh, sometimes we love we love fixing the blame. But my guest, uh, Ed Stetzer, has written a book focusing on this whole phenomenon of what it's like to be a faithful disciple of Jesus in this age of outrage. It's called Christians in the Age of Outrage. How to bring our best when the world is at its work, worst. Uh, Ed is the author of this book. Uh, He holds the Billy Graham Distinguished Chair of Church, Mission, and Evangelism. He's the Dean of the School of Mission, Ministry, and Leadership at Wheaton College and uh, serves there as Executive Director of the Billy Graham Center. You can follow him at Ed Stetzer. That's S-T-E-T-Z-E-R, edstetzer.com. Ed, good to have you with me. Thanks. Well, so great to be here, Al. Thanks for having me. And man, I, I didn't actually put in the book that it releases hormones in hindsight. <laughs> I actually like that, and I do think it does certainly kind of fire your brain in a way that can be satisfying. Right, right. I mean, I sometimes, we probably all know people like this, friends or friendly acquaintances, who at times you suspect they're addicted uh, to expressions of moral outrage uh, because they're so frequently on their lips. Um, what do you mean by the age of outrage? Well, you know, it seems in the last few years, things have just, someone's turned up the volume to yeah. 11, and yeah. there's, you know, some of it's political, but it, and it's certainly been exacerbated by the current political climate, but it's more than just that. I think right. social media has, has kind of added to that as well, where basically people form packs on social media to shame and, yep. and destroy people with whom they disagree. And so I think what it points to is that we have, um, lived in a time, we're living in a time when the world, at least in our part of the world, has decided that the way to, to move forward is to move forward by yelling at others. And, and I don't think that's the way of Jesus. And, and it doesn't mean we can't stand up for things. I think things matter. There are moral things we'll stand up for. There are faith things we're standing up for. But what we see is, is that outrage has both been directed at followers of Jesus but but also, and this is really key, but also sometimes inappropriately directed from believers. Mm-hmm. We're not, you mm-hmm. know, I don't know about you, Al, but I look on my Facebook page and I see some really terrible things being said, yeah. or on Twitter, and yeah. I click on the bio, and then the bio says that they're a Christian or a follower of Jesus, and I'm like, then I think you're doing this wrong. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, uh, yeah. I've mentioned on the air before that in the last few years, I've uh, heard from listeners, uh, our audience is largely Catholic, but we have a number of evangelicals, and I'm a former evangelical pastor, so I understand the community. I, I've been surprised uh, at the vo- volume uh, 
the uh, the uh, this verbal decibel level, if you want to think of it that way, of messages that I've gotten, comments, uh, and I and I'm not entirely certain what why this has happened. This was not true 30 years ago. There were always people who were filled with uh, outrage over the culture, uh, and there were always people who felt that uh, their Christian community wasn't living up to what it should be. There were always those who were very quick to invoke Jesus and the money changers to justify their anger. But it does seem worse today. You know the evangelical community very well. Uh, Any surveys been done to indicate how evangelicals are thinking? Is it worse today than it was 30 years ago? Yeah, yeah, we actually did, and we do research kind of throughout the book. I did a research project in line with it, published some of it in Christianity Today, got a major evangelical publication. Sure. Mm-hmm. Um, so what we what we find is is that people do think that culture is becoming more vitriolic. People do think all this happening. I think part of it, Al, is that people, too many people are being discipled by their cable news choices and spiritually shaped by their social media feed. So in Christians in the Age of Outrage, that's part of what we're trying to push against, is how do we not end up thinking uh, in ways... And again, cable news has become just a shout fest. How do we we not get discipled to be like that, but instead to stand for what's right, you know, to engage and show and share the love of Jesus in the midst of a broken and hurting world and more, but to do it without the vitriol. Because, mm-hmm. you know, and people talk about culture war, right? And yeah. I'm not, I don't use that language a whole lot, but people talk about culture war. If there's a culture war, people, okay, but you can't war against a world and reach a world at the same time. Yes. And as someone who believed Jesus died on the cross for our sin and in our place, I want the good news of the gospel to be sold to everybody, and that requires me to build some bridges, even with people with whom I disagree. See, this is this is a very this is a an important point, and that is, uh, what is our fundamental identity? It seems to me, Um, does one do we see ourselves as united to Christ and His mission has become our mission, or are we fundamentally focused on? other issues. I, it seems to me we ought to always be thinking, am I, am I, by the way I'm conducting myself, my conversation, uh, my countenance, my behavior, am I helping uh, equip myself to be a more effective witness to the kingdom? And very few people are attracted to moral outrage, especially today, I, the whole, the whole, uh, you know, I sometimes look back at uh, the the style of evangelistic preaching. Uh, in in the past, it used to be a lot more uh, uh, tough sounding. Yeah, it's uh, true. And and things have changed. Most effective evangelistic preaching today is more understanding. It's I mean, even you can look even over the history of Billy Graham, who you know very very well. His his uh, tone modulated over his oh, no career. Question. Yeah, no question. Yeah. And I think part of that is because culture changed. Right. One of the questions that 
you know, and as you, as you pointed out, I'm here at Evangelical Institution. I train evangelical missionaries. You know, one of the things that we train is, is that when culture shifts, the gospel remains steady. It's an unchanging reality that, that Jesus died on the cross, and we're to announce that message of the gospel. But what does shift is the way we might engage it. And today we live in an age that is not so much responding to people yelling at you. Yeah. And I, not that that was ever a good idea, uh, but, uh, <laughs> no. but it did seem that, I mean, if you watch old tapes of Mr. Graham uh, preaching, it was, it was very much, I mean, it's also a different day, you know, it was anti-communism right. was a thing, right. and, you know, so, so we got to, everything has to be seen in the context of it today. But, you know, for, for, for all of us, I think ultimately we've got to ask the question, you know, and again, as an, as an evangelical pastor myself, in addition to being a professor, I'm just trying to ask the question, how am I going to lead men and women to faith in Jesus Christ? They might know him and be changed by the power of his gospel. And if I believe that to be true, I've got to ask the question, how should I engage them? And here's the difference. I engage them rather than enrage them. Mm. Um, mm-hmm. And that's a big part of what like the Age of Outrage is about. But, yeah. and this is key, man, it's not just us. I mean, people, people are yelling at people of faith just as much as people of faith are poorly communicating the other direction. <laughs> I, in fact, I just saw an article last week, and I mentioned it uh, on the air. It, within the, within the Catholic circles, there's a, a practice. It's, it's become more popular in the recent gener- this recent generation, but it's what we call consecrated virginity. And yep. there, there are those who will uh, come to conclusion at some point in their life that they're being called to be single, you know, for the Lord, for the remainder of their life, and so sure. they take vows uh, to help them uh, imp- make promises, excuse me, to shore up their their uh, commitment. So there was a piece that ran, uh, the BBC piece, and it actually was not a bad piece at all, though the, the reporter took seriously the commitment of this woman who was being profiled. But in the comments that followed, they were so juvenile and adolescent yep. and mocking of her. Yep. Uh, and here's a woman who I've, I know a number of uh, women who have become consecrated virgins. And I, they're incredibly mature, uh, joyful, good-willed. And the assumptions that were being made about this woman were just itself outrageous. Uh, and there are many practices within historic Christian communities that uh, are increasingly misunderstood uh, by those in the the world at large, uh, and I I think we have this we have a problem in that we're the target as well as the producer of some of this outrage. What do you suggest doing on this issue when we're the target of it? Yeah, well, and I, part of that case is how how do you respond? There was a. Uh, there was a, a, a well-known business owner. He owns a bunch. You know, he's a billionaire, so he owns companies that own companies that own yeah. companies. Mm-hmm. And uh, and he gets uh, he's a he's a he's an evangelical Christian. He gets attacked by this magazine called uh, Pitchfork Magazine. It's a music magazine, and people are kind of uh, aware of it. And they because he, he owned a musical conference called uh, called Coachella through one of his holding companies, holding company, whatever. And they basically said, uh, it, it, let me just read, I'll read the headline. I sure. wrote about it in Christians in the Age of Outrage. Outrage. It's Coachella's co-owners' latest charitable filings show deep anti-LGBTQ ties, unquote. 
Now, again, Coachella's, Coachella's a music festival that I don't go to because I'm not cool, and I'm guessing you haven't been there either. <laughs> Many of our listeners probably haven't. But the business owner's guy, his name is Phil Anschutz. So, and he's an evangelical Christian. Now, now you've been an evangelical pastor, so sure. you'll recognize these names. So they list the deep, quote, the deep anti-LGBTQ, unquote, organizations. Here they are. The Navigators, <laughs> Dare to Share, the Center for Urban Renewal, Movie Guide Awards, and wow. those crazy people at Young Life. <laughs> now, those are pretty much, you can't get more mainstream right. evangelical Christian organizations. So the question yeah. is, is how do you respond? Well, some of it I think we, we have to push back on and say, you know, right. we live in a world of tolerance. And, for example, our views on, on marriage or morality are now out of the mainstream culture. Right. But we, it matters that we also have to have accommodations for our views as people of faith. That's right. Yeah, we've become a cognitive minority. That's for certain. Hold it there, Ed. Yep. We'll be back yep. and continue. Ed Stetzer, my guest, a wonderful book called Christians in the Age of Outrage. How to bring our best when the world is at its worst. I'm Al Cresto. We'll be right back. Good afternoon. I'm Al Cresto. With me is Ed Stetzer. He's the author of Christians in the Age of Outrage, How to Bring Our Best When the World is at Its Worst. Uh, we're taking a look again at this phenomenon of, you might say, addiction to outrage. Uh, in fact, it was mentioned by one of the bishops uh, in Baltimore when we were there, uh, well, two weeks ago now. Um, what is the what uh, distinguish? We all know there's a legitimate place for righteous anger, for heaven's sake. Absolutely, sakes, you know. Um, so you know, on one hand, James tells us that. Uh, the anger of man works not the righteousness of God. At the same time, St. Paul says, um, be angry but sin not. So we know there's the, the biblical perspective on this is a little more subtle than people might realize. What is right, When is outrage righteous anger, and when isn't it? How do you tell? Yeah, well, I would say, I would say there are things we need to be outraged about. Um, you know, we just saw the Supreme Court decline to hear cases related to Planned Parenthood's defunding. I'm, I'm deeply concerned. My outrage, I, I, outrage is a word I don't like to use, but it outrages yeah. me that, that we live in a country that I think 100 years from now we'll look back and see the, the terrible view that our culture took towards uh, unborn uh, children in the world. Right. So, you know, so I, I look at things like that, or, or injustice, or brokenness, or racism, or war. The, the challenge is, is and, and I actually write about this, in, in specifically, what's the difference, right? Because uh, one of the things is that righteous anger, this is just right from the book, or Christians in the Age of Outrage, righteous anger is directed towards things that anger God. That's a, that's a seems like it'll be an appropriate reality. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, because if, if not, then it's just sort of us getting angry at the things that bother us. Um, also, too, a lot of it depends upon, uh, you know, it's interesting, your, your comment about, you know, the hormones being released in yeah. outrage. You know, the kind of kind of the outrage that doesn't glorify God actually feeds the flesh. It actually right. is something yeah. that 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 enables us to say, "Look, I did something." And people, and I, you know, I I preach at churches and I encourage people on this. And invariably, someone will come up to me and say, "You know, I'm American. I just got a right to to, to express myself." And they do, <laughs> and they say, "Well, I'm just trying to be frank." And I say to them, "Listen, if your name's not Frank, maybe stop trying to be Frank. Uh, and if your name's Frank." Try to do it in a way that honors God, because righteous anger mirrors the way God is angry. And I think a lot of times that's not what 
the kind of righteous anger I see people think they're using. So, out, so contrasting that with outrage, right? Outrage is disproportionate, just blows everything up. It's selfish. It's making your point and moving on. It's divisive. It's visceral. It's at the core yeah. of our being. But ultimately, it's more about us venting than us addressing the situation. And I think the last election now was a perfect example because, I mean, the country is divided. Yeah. And I want to have my neighbors respond to the good news of the gospel. Yep. And if they're seeing them on Facebook, I'm just posting every day how stupid people are right. of a different political persuasion than me, and half the country has a different political persuasion. I've put politics even ahead of the gospel yep. when they need to hear the good news of the gospel and be, and be invited to respond. Yeah, your identity, your, 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 those who you're trying to reach will identify you, first of all, as somebody from a particular political persuasion, uh, which uh, in this case uh, is always on the attack. And uh, if you're showing political outrage all the time, people are going to assume that's what you hold most dear. And so it makes it much more difficult to share your faith uh, and to share the gospel with people, it seems to me. You have less of an entry into their lives. You've, You've kind of lost moral authority with them. Yeah, no question. And I think ultimately that's where it gets confusing to people who don't know Christ, right? So if you don't, and you see that Christians are so angry all the time, and and might I also add, easily fooled. That's one thing that really bothered me is, and I wrote about this in the book, is is there's a sense that even the the Russian, I mean, everyone agrees, I know there's a whole lot of debate about the Russia stuff, but everybody agrees on this, that the Russians tried to divide America using social media. Uh, that's just, I mean, everyone's on page with that. The, the challenge is, there were several stories that pointed out how they specifically targeted religious conservatives. Yeah. So conservative Catholics in your world, right. evangelicals in my world, and they targeted them because it worked. Can I just tell you, as an evangelical who wants to see people born again by the power of the gospel, it does not help if we are seen as an angry and easily fooled people. <laughs> and so I think some discernment would really matter here. Uh, outrage, is it sin? I think it can be. I mean, I think ultimately it depends how it's... I mean, again, it depends upon what I'm outraged about, sure. right? Mm-hmm. So, the, And the word is defined in different ways. But what I would say, let's put it this way, there is a lot of sin going on in the name of getting our country back, in the name of stopping the, the liberals. I mean, let's talk, again, you're a conservative Catholic audience. I'm an evangelical, conservative evangelical at that. I mean, I get that we feel pressure from the culture. Right. The answer is not to become uh, like the people we may see on cable news yelling at one another. Right. The answer is not to be the people of the Pitchfork, right? the, the Pitchfork magazine. Right? They took up the Pitchfork against, against uh, Philip Anschutz that I mentioned earlier, the mm-hmm. owner of Coachella. We're not to be people of the Pitchfork. We're to be people of the towel. We pick up the towel as Jesus did and serve others. Now, now, lest anyone be confused, any of your listeners here, what he's saying, just capitulate to the culture. You know, I mean, that you'd have to read what I write. That is not no. at all right. what I'm saying. Um, but it's a question of how we do it, and a lot of it's being done badly, and it's burning bridges for the gospel where we should be building them. Yeah, I mean, there's, there's ways of fighting back, for heaven's sake, uh, without uh, discrediting our witness uh, to the kingdom of God. And uh, we we can be good Christians and also good citizens, right? 
Well, I think we have to be, and you know, yeah. the, uh, a guy, there's, I don't, maybe I shouldn't mention, so Luther had this idea, he's, he's, he's a guy we probably don't talk a lot, um, <laughs> but he talked about <laughs> this idea that we are citizens of two kingdoms, um, and, and I think, of course, the idea goes back longer than that, but that's kind of a key thought in mm-hmm. that, in Lutheran thought, and I think that's the right, it's right, so right. not only do I think that we should be good citizens, I feel as a Christian, I have an obligation, a spiritual obligation to participate by voting, by being engaged, uh, you know, uh, for example, even on this issue of life, you know, I spoke at the Chicago March for Life uh, last year. Yeah. I mean, we're involved at multiple, multiple levels. Right, right. Um, I guess I always like to ask, who do you think's doing it right? Are there public figures out there that you can point to that you think model for us a good way of you know that balance between being thoroughly committed to pushing back against uh, unrighteousness, uh, corruption, falsehood, uh, but at the same time being winsome enough yeah. that the gospel is attractive. Yeah. Well, you know, my world, you know, I know evangelicalism better, so yeah, sure, uh, no, that's fine. Like, yeah, like Tim Keller. Yeah, I love Tim very Keller. Very well yeah. known, known in that space. I think a yeah. lot of a lot of people in, in your audience would know. Uh, maybe a lesser-known one in your audience would be someone like Gabe Lyons, who mm-hmm. seeks to and actually host conversations to better these uh, these relationships. You know, okay. it's interesting, even focus on the family, which I'm guessing a lot of your yeah. listeners might know, under under its leadership now, has really tried to be a voice for yeah. bringing... I've been in meetings where very differing people were brought together by Focus on the Family to try to learn and listen with one another. Um, you know, and, and, and it's, it's interesting because the, the voices that want to go the other way are quite uh, aggressive. And I, I think the, 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 the tricky thing is how do we take those right steps? Now, in the evangelical world, we're trying to, we're trying to do better. Um, and it's interesting because, for example, the president of Biola University, that's to be one of our larger evangelical mm-hmm. schools, mm-hmm. Um, he actually um, kind of laid out the idea that there was a, there, there are right now Catholic schools, evangelical schools are all feeling pressure, uh, less so right now, but, but in the years, not, not far from now, in the past, under the Obama administration, some of the pressures of how do we respond to Title IX laws right. and rules right. and what are called Dear Colleague Letters. And Barry was in California, is in California, it's where his school is, and the California state legislature was passing a law. And uh, California Assembly member Evan Lowe was actually leading this that would basically uh, create what they would consider non-discrimination laws and what Biola and a Catholic university would consider really basic changes to how they see men and women in the Christian community. Uh, marriage and identity yep. and more. And what they did is they did this crazy idea. They actually got to know one another. Um, Evan Lowe went to, met Barry, went to the campus, talked to people, um, you know, of, of different views and backgrounds, and uh, and and found that well, Biola is a remarkably diverse institution, doing such good work. Their idea of what evangelicals believed yes. was a caricature. Right. And right. and and I got to tell you too, sometimes it's a caricature of what. Uh, you know, I see these, and, and you've seen it too, Al. I mean, Christians spreading these horrible conspiracy theories about people they don't like. <laughs> right. uh, that's a caricature of them. Well, the other side believes conspiracy theories about us. Right. So we've got to find <laughs> ways true. to actually build some yeah. bridges. You know, that's uh, that's a very, very important point. You use the word ambassadors, kingdom ambassadors. Here. Yeah, that's right. Uh, ambass- that's a good term. I mean, uh, if you think of yourself as an ambassador, that's going to form some sort of check on how you express yourself, I think. 
Yeah, I think so. And I think it was funny. I was talking to my daughter yesterday. She's a student here at Wheaton College where I teach, and she's just become a waitress. And she said she got a bad tip because the kitchen was slow. And and uh, and I said to her, Yeah, I used to do that. And and but now and and it's not again. I'm not because I'm like so much better than anybody else. But now I sort of recognize that if somebody knows or sees me praying over my dinner or whatever, that even if they're a terrible waiter or waitress, I'm still representing somebody else. <laughs> That's right. Yeah. And so, and again, maybe if I didn't pray or maybe if I wasn't a, you know, a semi-known public figure in evangelicalism, uh, maybe, maybe I'd say something different. But for me, when I'm an ambassador, I know that I'm representing Jesus and his kingdom, right? Yeah. I mean, here we are in Advent. You know, God the Son born, Jesus the Christ, lives a sinless life, dies on the cross for our sin in, a place, in our place. God raises him from the dead on the third day, sends us as ambassadors, and then you're a jerk? I think you're doing it wrong. <laughs> You know, I've noticed in some of my conversations with people about this, there's a there's a um, a loss of respect for what people words like love, for instance, which is at the heart of the Christian faith. God's love for us, Jesus as uh, I mean, God is love for heaven's sakes. Um, that if you invoke love. You're considered sentimentalist. You're you're mm-hmm. you're soft. You're you're not yeah. standing up for the truth. And time and again, truth and love are being pitted against one another. Any suggestions on how to hold the two together within our own communities of faith? Yeah, it's a great question. And of course, I wrote the 300 plus page book in your hand on that. <laughs> uh, so I'm totally with you that it's tricky. But I don't think we're doing that well. We're just not doing that well. And I think ultimately, um, this is our day. You know, we don't pick the time we live in. Christians have lived in times when there's persecution and brokenness. Our day is, how will we show and share the love of Jesus in the day of outrage? Yeah. So ultimately, men and women can hear the good news. Ed, hold it there. We'll continue on the other side of the break. My guest is Ed Stetzer. How to bring our best when the world is at its worst. The book is called Christians in the Age of Outrage. I'm Al Cresta. More coming up. Good afternoon to you. I'm Al Cresta. With me is Ed Stetzer, author of Christians in the Age of Outrage, How to Bring Our Best When the World is at Its Worst. By the way, I've never seen sheep with fangs like that. <laughs> Isn't that the greatest cover <laughs> ever? It is a um, great cover, yeah. I, yeah. Didn't, I didn't make it. I, they, uh, Tyndale's uh, publisher, evangelical publisher, and they, and they sent it to me, and I, uh, people just loved it because, I mean, again, <laughs> we're supposed to be you know, the sheep, but sometimes we can be very ravenous and wolfy. I guess that's not a word, but you get the point. Right. Um, and so it's, uh, it's, it's an interesting time that uh, Christians have so, in many, many cases, have become the problem rather than the solution. But you know what the answer is? I, I think the answer is, I, I read a whole chapter on digital discipleship. You know, yeah. this whole social media is 10 years old. No one, I mean, I was on CompuServe like 25 years ago, but that, that didn't count. <laughs> right. uh, but like really having social media at your hand all the time and just stuff yelling at each other all the time, that's a 10-year-old deal. And I've not heard many sermons on it. I've right. not read many resources on it. We've got to acknowledge, 
I mean, I get this little thing from my phone that says how many hours a day I've been on the phone. And I right. look at it, and I'm sometimes like, wow. I mean, we need some digital discipleship to help shape. Jesus needs to be the Lord of your online engagement, just as he's the Lord of all your life. Yeah. My, my friend Paul Patton at Spring Arbor uh, University, in fact, has just been writing on this. And uh, I, I'm not sure if it's going to get published uh, anytime soon. I hope so, uh, because it's a great book where he takes a look at this whole question of the use of digital media and how it affects our our witness. Is is it, you know, it used to be writing letters to the editor uh, in, in the old style with newspapers. You had to include your name and address. People knew who you were. Uh, with the rise of digital media uh, in com- uh, comment boxes, uh, you, you can use... Uh, aliases you can use that you don't yeah. have to put your name down there you can do it anonymously and people tend it seems to me people tend to be less careful less respectful more outrageous when they don't have to take personal responsibility for it when their name's not attached to their opinions think so oh absolutely yeah. um and i think part of the challenge is, is that's why i mean i block people who who you know like are using anonymous accounts and things yeah saying inappropriate things all the time. I'm, I'm, you know, I'm, I'm on social media. Again, what you hear, don't think I'm anti-social media, right? right? I'm on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram. I'm not on Pinterest because I think that's only women allowed on Pinterest. <laughs> um, I, I know, I don't know any guys on Pinterest. Maybe they are. I'm just saying, statistics show it's much more women. Um, so I'm for social media. What I'm against is social media that is vitriolic. And I think it is unimaginable that somebody who has been made new in Christ, who has been sent on a mission, John twenty twenty one, Jesus says, as the Father has sent me, so send I you, that then would think that God would have you use social media, which can reach the world, to constantly vent your angry opinion towards other people. I can't mm-hmm. imagine yeah. that was his desire or his attempt, intent. Um, Matthew chapter 18 uh, gives us uh, instruction on how to deal with matters of at least a personal offense. Uh, some people broaden that. Uh, and it said, if a brother offends you, uh, you know, love confront him, let him know that he's hurt you. If he won't hear you, then you try to find somebody to come with you to help mediate the conflict. If that doesn't work, two people, three people. If if you still can't bring about uh, forgiveness, reconciliation, and maybe restitution, then you take it to the church. Um, I've always thought that was an important passage, as difficult as it might be to apply. It's, a, it's an important passage because it shows the importance of uh, reconciled relationships within the, the body of Christ. Um, is this passage now being abused because people feel as though they can publicly rebuke uh, and have a biblical basis for it? Huh. That's a good question. I don't address that much in the book, partly because I don't think Matthew 18, like, you know, I'm a, I wrote an article for the Washington Post last week kind of explaining evangelical views of reaching people groups yeah. around the world with uh, John Chow in the North Centralese, um, saw that not, not, you know, not a full-throated endorsement, but just saying this is why evangelicals believe that men and women from every tongue, tribe, and nation need to hear the gospel. And I found some people who disagreed with me. Of course, a lot of, I mean, <laughs> I assure you, a lot of people disagreed with me. But let's say it's a Christian, even people in my church or my faith community. I don't feel that since I've made a public statement 
that they would need to come to me to reconcile right. a disagreement That's with right. that public statement. I agree. Now, I think if they wronged me personally, so let me give you another example. So I, I had somebody comment on in Twitter, uh, Facebook, in, on my Facebook page from a church where I was serving as interim with a very, uh, very inappropriate comment that they would later say. Um, and what happened is um, someone from the church, it was actually interesting to watch, so I saw the comment, I tend to leave it alone, um, and then I saw someone from the church come in and comment and say, listen, we should talk about this. I didn't do anything, but so another, was, uh, another person said, we should talk about this. And then both comments disappeared. I found out later they met, kind of worked through this, oh. and it was a good thing. So I think you can take things offline, but I think public criticism of public ideas is just part of being in the right. public sphere. You do it you do it all the time. Yeah, no, just, you know, people true. will call you and say, I don't like what you said. That's yeah. part of life. Yeah. Um, but I do think there is a place to to not rush into the idea that the best place to settle an argument. I mean, on my team at the Billy Graham Center, we're not even allowed to send emails to argue. If you've got a disagreement with somebody, just walk down the hall. Don't use, and if you can't explain it well in a thousand-word email, you certainly can't do it in a 240-word tweet. It's not the best <laughs> place to do it. No, very good. By the way, uh, we have not talked about the, uh, the situation, the, the death of uh, John uh, Chow, uh, I do think it's it, Catholics as well as evangelicals are interested in this kind of thing. Tell us the sure. story. Yeah, of course. So, um, so John Chow is a uh, Pentecostal evangelical missionary. The early reports sort of said that he showed up on the island. The early, early reports were very um, disturbing, and you know, basically showed up on the island, shouted hello in English, um, uh, hollered is the word he used. Um, didn't have any preparation. He's an adventurer, and he just shows up on this, you know, island where where things are banned, uh, where people are visitors are banned. Well, it turns out he. I mean, I, I as the dean of a school of transmissionaries, um, I would have wanted him to. I think we've had less conversation about this if he had been trained in some additional ways of engaging culture. So, but what we found later is, well, no, he actually went to linguistic school. Nobody speaks the language of the North Sentinelese, but you can learn how languages are structured, and he did. He sought to do that, and, and he did go through a mission agency. At first, he's just okay. a solo guy. He shows up. No, he's actually sent out by a mission agency. Wow. But at the end of the day, the idea that, you know, Revelation 7 talks about men and women from every tongue, tribe, and nation, and for evangelicals strongly believe that that means it's our job to go to every tongue, tribe, and nation, help right. them to understand the gospel by grace, through faith, to be born again, Mm-hmm. And so that men and women from every tongue, tribe, and nation would be there. But but that's a very offensive idea in this world we live in today. Even mm-hmm. even the idea of conversion is very offensive to the idea in the in the world we live today. Yeah, and so this uh, he was killed, uh, and um, he was he was being held. And some people saw him as a heroic a martyr. Yeah. Other people saw him as uh, you know. A, a, kind of a freelance person, uh, you know, missionizing people who didn't want to be spoken to. Uh, he went to a very remote Indian island there. Uh, and how, how do you think the story's playing out within evangelicalism? Well, I think everyone was, I didn't, you know, I'm, I'm a, my PhD is in missiology, and so this is an area that I'm natural to engage in. Yeah. But I, I, it just sounded so odd at first. I didn't say anything, and so everyone was like, this guy was you know, crazy, this guy was whatever. And it turns out, and in my article in the Washington Post, they say he was more prepared than we thought. Yeah. But I think for a lot of evangelicals, that's still, there's a long way 
I'm doing a series at Christianity Today on him. For example, we would the best practice would be to find somebody in a nearby island that we might engage as a follower of Christ to go share the gospel. Right. So uh, when you know Americans show up around the world and just land on an island, I mean, there's well, there's global news, and that's what this has become is global news. So I think for a lot of evangelicals, they appreciate his his passion. They do believe that people in every tongue, tribe, and nation need the gospel. But I think they would say there's some things that needed to be done differently, if not even substantially uh, differently. And as a trainer of missionaries, I've trained missionaries who go to India and also missionaries in India. Um, this would not be how we would encourage someone yeah. to go alone, for example, but instead to go with a team, work with nationals. But again, I think the early reports are part of what I was pushing back on. Not a not a perfect situation. I'm trying to critique graciously and lovingly with yeah. nuance in Christianity today. But nevertheless, just the idea that men and women are, you know, Ephesians says, dead in their trespasses and sins. Right. They need the new life, need, the new life that right. comes only from Christ. That's Amen. controversial today. Uh, how does it compare with, I mean, the, 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 the media response to Chow's death is very different than the media response to Jim Elliott's death when he was killed by the Alka Indians. Uh, how do the two compare? Yeah, well, I think that's the that's where I actually went in my Washington Post article. So, because I'm sitting at the Billy Graham Center, and we're literally 200 feet from where I am is Jim Elliott's journal, who in which he writes, you know, he's a very famous line. It's actually um, kind of a modification of someone else's uh, someone else's comments as well. Uh, but he talked about he is no fool. You know, the idea people thought he was a fool, um, and I, that's how I ended my article. I see, but he said he is no fool who gives up, you know, and this is what he does, right? He is no fool who gives up when he cannot, what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. And here's the deal. I, again, I, I, can, I can critique John Chow all day, but I'm still one of those fools who thinks yeah. that people need Christ, even on other sides of the world. And so, so I think that's the big distinction. So Elliot was on the front page of Life magazine, Elliot and his associates, and Elliot, by the way, is a Wheaton College grad, uh, but Elliot and his associates are all on the front page of Life magazine, and it spurs a greater engagement in global missions, right. whereas Chow is on the front page of newspapers around the world with a backlash of global missions. What's mainly changed is the world. <laughs> That's what I was going to ask you, yeah. 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 Um, people are a lot less—the the, the, the image of the missionary has changed culturally, the missionaries haven't changed. In fact, the missionaries are probably more effective today than they've ever been in terms oh, of Oh, no training. question, because yeah. you remember, too, I mean, think about the history of missions. Think about uh, the, the colonization. Think about the spreading of disease. Think right. about how many huge disasters were just because we engaged poorly across right. cultures. Yep. And people write, I've written a book on this, people write books on this, but that's stuff we don't really do anymore. There's still challenges, there's still, you know, types of colonization, ideology, all that sort of stuff. But, but again, where we are now in missions is not the conquistadors showing up with missionaries in the back of the boat. Right. Uh, we're at a very different place, yet the world has changed as well, and people are just angry that you would think somebody needs to respond by grace and through faith to the good news of the gospel. Yeah, yeah. No, it's, it is. It's a different different era that we're in. Um, so would you say that the, the, use, of digi- the dig- use of digital media is one place to really get our arms around this problem of proliferating outrage. Uh, Christians should really take more seriously uh, the stewardship of these resources. Yeah, yeah, I think so. I think, I mean, ultimately, 
the this has become you know, think of the Roman roads, right? So yeah. we, the, you know, Jesus is born in this really this backwater part of the Roman Empire, yet the gospel spreads across those Roman roads and and really goes around the world. I mean, just amazingly, um, you think about this this little little place called Bethlehem and now this this church around the world. What I would say is we need to see social media as roads across which the good news of the gospel needs to be communicated, and that's what we're trying to emphasize. Ed, thank you so much. I really appreciate the work, and uh, we'll talk again, Lord willing. Thanks. Sounds good. Ed Stetzer, the book is called Christians in the Age of Outrage, filled with insight through the entire book. Also, there's a lot of good empirical information, too, on surveys that have been taken about uh, Christian attitudes.